For October 22nd, 2018, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 538, The Dead Author of Your Own Fiction. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like, well, let's say that they are, because it's not a simile, it's a metaphor. A metaphor! Metaphor! <laughs> they are your smart, funny friends from the internet. Uh, we're never happier than when we are sitting around retelling each other the same old stories that we've retold for uh, nigh on two decades now. I'm Matt Rather, and I'm here with Pete Fenzel. Hello, Pete. The mom running back into the house at the end of Home Alone, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> and Mark Lee. <laughs> Sarah Connor with the shotgun in the steel mill. <laughs> <laughs> and uh and we we so look. <laughs> <laughs> look. You don't know how hard it is. <laughs> To keep doing a podcast for 538 episodes, plus special episodes, plus 300 episodes of the Gossip Girl slash Indie Music podcast, plus the various TV series, plus the, I don't even know what, what else we've done. Oh, the book club ones, plus the, uh, the podcast that you can get if you are a member of Overthinking and if you support us with a monthly or annual donation at overthinkingit.com slash join, you get access to the digital library, which is uh, more podcasts, including the new PeteCast, which is on Venom. Like, it's it's hard, you know? And very often we... Hidalgo in the desert. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. uh, um, Training. Montaged. (laughs) <laughs> the uh it's it's difficult for us sometimes to come up with the thing and I, I think that's why sometimes we just default back to whatever the big blockbuster movie is because we know it's going to be in the conversation we know we're going to have some shared context with it and uh that's what we talk about but sometimes there isn't a big movie or at least not one that we're we're interested in talking about like notably a couple times this summer we let our our blockbuster fatigue uh we allowed ourselves a break and talked about some more general topics and stuff like that and then we get together in our chat room sometimes and just scrape not even the bot just every part of the barrel the well scraped parts of the barrel we scrape in case something new started growing there during the period since we last scraped and we pitch each other podcast ideas and so here's what the winning one was here's what the uh the improbable um the sort of improbable podcast topic was i i noticed that it was less than a month since the 20th uh 27th anniversary of uh the original airing of the star trek the next generation episode darmok and uh we wondered if we could just watch darmok and see if if uh, we had talked about it before, <laughs> and turns out we hadn't. And so we wanted to, to get into Darmok, get in a little bit to storytelling and science fiction, and into, not simile, but metaphor! metaphor! Now, sometimes we get silly with these. We consider doing the whole thing in, in Darmok speak. But, uh, you know, this is, you know, Shaquille O'Neal, his arms down, (laughs) like Shaquille O'Neal at rest. Yeah. Uh, Oh, yeah. I was going to say, like, uh, teenage Matt, his worst impulse is thwarted. We are (laughs) we are not going to (laughs) we are not going to. I I used to be very into kind of alienating performance art. I should say 20 something Matt. That's probably more accurate. But uh, we're not going to do alienating performance art. We're going to talk a little bit about Matt. Metaphor. So, can we begin, Mark? Can you just tell us in you know a uh, a well-formed paragraph or thereabouts what is Darmok? What the heck is this thing about? Sure, Darmok, and you probably even if you've never seen Star Trek: The Next Generation, you've almost definitely heard us reference it on this podcast, uh, specifically for the phrase Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra. 
which by itself is nonsense, means nothing. But through the course of 45 minutes or so watching Star Trek The Next Generation, you realize it means cooperation. So here's the deal. Star Trek, uh, you know, the Enterprise is out there um, uh, doing its thing, exploring strange new worlds. And they come across this alien race who Starfleet has never been able to establish communication with because they speak in, well, in this incomprehensible uh, language isn't even the right word in, in an incomprehensible way because you hear them speaking English, but they spat out all these nonsense phrases like Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra. They don't understand what's going on anyway. So the Captain Picard um, gets beamed to the other planet and the, and the Enterprise, along with the uh, the other aliens, Captain, they don't understand what's going on again because they can't communicate. Um, it all turns out that this is a sort of an elaborate ritual for the other aliens to teach the humans how they communicate to bridge this gap of misunderstanding uh, and to establish uh, establish contact. Uh, so while uh, Picard and the other captain are on the planet's surface learning the meaning of Darmok and Jalad and Tanagra, Temba, his arms open, shock of the walls fell, all these things um, that, that, that carry with a you know, specific meaning and, and can actually you know, form the basis of communication. While they're doing this in a very drawn-out process, uh, meanwhile in space, the remaining crew in the Enterprise don't understand what's going on and eventually like ratchet up tension because of the misunderstanding and start shooting at the other alien ship. Uh, just in the nick of time, Captain Picard, armed with his new understanding of how to communicate with the aliens, beams back to the ship, uh, establishes communication, and everything is good because he understands metaphor. Metaphor. <laughs> they communicate through metaphor. It's great high-concept science fiction in that like, there's this uh, kind of outlandish idea. Like, what if an alien species communicated through metaphor and they uh, execute on the idea, and uh, it's it's the it's the basis for all sorts of great in jokes and discussions about language and ideas and storytelling, all these things like we said before. So yeah, that's the episode. I mean, did it, did I miss anything? I just clarify that they don't just talk in metaphors; they talk in references to people, places, and events that exist in their shared mythology. Yeah. So, like for example, if I were to try to describe to you, to other people, or to you, Mark, the process of us kind of becoming fast friends. Uh, if you said to me, like, I'm your friend, and I would look at you like you're crazy because I don't understand what those words mean. But if you said to me, Blake Lively receiving the traveling pants, Blake Lively <laughs> passing along the traveling pants, I would infer because I know the story of the sisterhood of the traveling pants and the film adaptation that you're talking about the process of girls who are nearly sisters who, despite their different body types, are able to share a common purpose because they all fit in the same pair of jeans that they accept and pass along to each other periodically through their summer and their years. Right. So like <laughs> the story of the sisterhood of the traveling pants not only gives us this kind of basis for understanding friendship. Uh, but it also provides us with the words and phrases that we use to describe the concept to other people. And yeah. in some way, we lose access to the underlying words. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and there's this uh, scene in the episode when they're just really spelling it out for the audience in case they're really, really not getting it. And one of the characters basically says, you know, imagine saying the phrase Juliet on her balcony as a reference to romance. Um, and right. And that's that that carries all of it. It's got the meaning for it. Um, and you, you can't just say romance. That doesn't mean anything. You have to say Juliet on her balcony. Now, that's Although, it's, it's an interesting. I mean, there's a problem because, like, it's not clear. Like, I want to be like Juliet on her balcony. I am Juliet on her balcony. Like, there there seems to be the relationship the relationship between I mean, metaphor is always an com implied comparison. Right. And that that like you say something else to imply that it it is comparable to uh, the subject under discussion. And that's uh, that that is a sort of definition of of metaphor. It's an implied comparison uh, without the the use of a simile word like like or as or something like that. Um, that makes the, the comparison explicit. Or as my uh, ninth grade English teacher used to say, metaphor is what comes after meta three and before <laughs> meta five. Uh, but the, the, um, you know, the, it's always the art of it, right. In poetry or in, in literature or, 
of all sorts, right, is how is the specific basis for the comparison and the specific kind of feel of the comparison, right? Like, is it is it something that's bad? Is it sometimes you can sort of undercut by a particular metaphor something that, that you're talking about to make it seem on, ominous or uncanny or uh, foreboding in some way or make it just seem not good? You know, it's not uh, it's it, so the idea of like Juliet on her balcony, that's an idea of romance. It's maybe also an idea of teen suicide or an idea yeah. of sort of first love. And so it's not, it can't be, I, you know, in 42 minutes of, of commercial television, like I, they do, uh, you know, a serviceable job, but, but if you were to kind of extrapolate this, there, there are a lot of ambiguities, um, that, not speaking like this tends to to address or solve uh, that speaking <laughs> <laughs> that speaking like this would only exacerbate well although to be fair i think we it is very easy, easy to overestimate how much not speaking like this actually solves these problems uh one of the little pieces of the episode of star trek that i really like that i didn't really notice until this rewatch is especially in the build-up the way that the different crew members are, are the different crew members on the enterprise are trying to suss out what they think the intentions are of the aliens that they can't communicate with and they each use their own metaphor to try to understand and talk about what they're doing. So Worf will be will say, well, they're they're in a combat of champions and and uh, I'm not worried about Picard because he'll be victorious in the combat. And and Riker says, uh, we want to get through this without an exchange of phaser fire. And then when when they shoots the phaser at the shuttle and disarms it, he goes, nice shooting. And so he thinks of it in terms of a Western where they're kind of cowboys, right? Uh, and, and and the idea of the quality of your shooting is kind of an aspect of mutual respect. But like, there's a lot bound up into Riker using the metaphor of the shootout and the high noon and the cowboy that you just passes without notice uh, because it seems like he's speaking in words that have clear meanings rather than in elaborate references to works of literature um even even something as simple as at one point dwarf refers to it as a stalemate if you actually want to interrogate what the word stalemate means it carries with it a sense it goes back you know you have to you have to know farsi right like you have to understand chess right like uh you have to know that you know, the shamat and his checkmates and the king is dead because it's the shah and they're dead and you have to understand the stalemates a situation that occurs in this game but people using the phrase don't really know that so you know, I think a lot of the time, part of the thing that kind of salvages the episode from an intellectual standpoint is that we communicate like this more than we think we do. Mm, um, you know, yeah. it's it's uh, what would I say? I would say da 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 da. Right, like um, would be my metaphor. <laughs> Where it's a sense of like I can hear that noise. This is like that's the noise from Close Encounters of the Third Kind, right? And, and I can hear that noise. And in the movie, it's it's sort of like, well, we need to come up with something that we can communicate to the aliens with without a common language. But like that language, that noise has like syntactical meaning sort of for me, especially now. Uh, you know, it's like, uh, I don't know. I'm just not a lexicalist is what I'm saying. It's, um, I'm not a person who believes that all of the meaning is really in the words and that we don't have to rely on these higher order constructions, abstractions and schemas in, in even basic communication. Yeah, I mean, I um, feel like there there is a little bit it, even in the kind of like, I don't know, social media, like Facebook sniping about grammar. Oh, I'm a grammar Nazi. You're 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 you know, they're they're uh, um there is a kind of middle brow one upsmanship that can that can happen with that there there is an idea um a sort of naive idea that like there is a there is a right way and it's always been it, it has it was ever thus which you know rejects both a kind of diachronic linguistic idea of a language evolving over time and also in in large part the the very histories of the words that you're insisting only mean uh, only mean one thing. Emerson, I think, Ralph Waldo Emerson uh, famously said something like, words are fossil poetry. Um, and it's the and the you know the one example I think that was given or at least that was given to me around when I learned that thing about Emerson was like the word egregious, which you know um, goes back I think to Greek uh, rather than to Farsi, but like uh, it means away from the flock. Right, Grex in in is a is a Latin borrowing from Greek that that 
meant flock, I think. And so ex grex, like the, the away from the flock kind of thing. And that's sort of, that's, but the idea that that is sort of latent in the word, right? That there is a sort of power, there's a kind of material mm-hmm. power that yep. the word itself has yeah. is Gandalf at the gates of Moria, right? <laughs> yeah. Speak friend and enter. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> what is, what is the, the dwarfish word for friend? Um, the, uh, the idea, yeah, that 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 actually that that has a, a sort of material power um, and a, a sort of moral force, also, I think, right? Is it's ridiculous, you know? What? Um, <laughs> would you would you, would, you, would you say that it's literally incorrect? <laughs> well, it's I, meta- I, 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 I would say that it's it's figuratively incorrect. <laughs> I, I, in case you're missing that, I am referring to the uh, the recent uh, move, of, at least in one dictionary, to define literally as well, you know, figuratively, just kind of like an emphasizer, as opposed to uh, its literal definition of being, you know, literal. Yeah, it's Gary a, it's, Coleman it's, questioning Willis as to what he is talking about. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. It's not completely absurd, but it is not the only way. Uh, it's not the only way that 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 words work, right? Like, I think you have to, there has to be a, an analysis of not only of, of surrounding words, not only of higher order, higher order, uh, metaphorical structures, some of which can, can be referential, can reach into other literary works, but also probably the, the occasion of, of the utterance, right? And, the to a certain extent, the, the, um, sort of social relations between the the social and or political relations between the speaker and the hearer uh, of the utterance before you can really get more, um, you know, before you can get even close to so, a, a so, complete outline. So Arnold telling him to let off some steam is what you're saying. <laughs> in the sense that, like, like in Commando, when Arnold sells for the guy to let off some steam after he impales him with the pu- steam pipe, uh, right, is, is, it's, the, it's the relationship between him and the guy he just impaled upon the steam pipe that uh, imbues the phrase let off some steam with its meaning, as well as the presence of the relative steam pipe. It's not just that the phrase let off some steam is diachronically related to all the past uses of letting off steam that have happened through history. History. But the current context of impaling a guy on a steam pipe also matters, is what you're saying. Yeah, the, 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 <laughs> ice to meet you is not just about ice in the past, but it's also about the ice that is being utilized in the present. It's actually actually the the good one in um, – is that Batman and Robin or is that Batman Forever where Arnold – Batman and Robin. You, Batman you and misidentified Robin. it a couple of times. It's Batman and Robin. Okay. Yeah, exactly. I, I can't – some of the, the latter-day Batman. I can't. Uh, I, I can't really distinguish. Joel Schumacher dizzy and stumbling down the stairs. Anyway, continue. <laughs> the, um, the the good one from there, from from our point of view, I think is the Iceman cometh, which I think I've talked about on this podcast before. Which not only you need is reference not only to Eugene O'Neill, not only to the kind of dirty joke that that you know famous play takes its title from um but also to a kind of a double meaning of ice as both diamonds and cold cold water right and and these things are these things are important and like you know just that the idea that ice has everything you know well just the slang i mean like slang of ice for diamonds i think like gives Mm. gives lie to the idea that the the material power of the word is all contained within the word because there's some sort of slippage there's there can be this sort of referential slippage in slang that is you know uh fun and exciting and and cool um it creates in groups and out groups it uh it creates a kind of game quality to language it you know it does a lot of things beyond uh you know the literal meaning or the kind of literal power that's inside the words you know Right, right, right. I, I'm like imagining how the one guy in those at the Tellurians, whatever these aliens are called, um, is that what they are? The Tellurians, 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 Tamarians, I believe. Tamarians, the ch- children of the Tamar. Children of Tamar. How there's one of them who uses puns, and he he's a really annoying because <laughs> because puns function very poorly if you really don't understand. Like I was just thinking about the phrase "your Achilles heel." 
right? And so what if you had somebody who stepped on something, right, and their foot was bleeding, and then you ran into them a half an hour later, and you're like, oh, how's your foot doing? And they're like, actually, it's doing fine. You can, I guess you could say it's your Achilles healed, right? Right, or your Achilles, your Achilles healed. And uh, and so that would be utilizing, of course, all the diachronic history going up at this point of that phrase. But the relevant situation that you're in is I- inseparable from the meaning of the words in that period of time. Yeah. Uh, so it's like Shaka when the walls fell. Uh, and it's like, you know, after he doesn't put up a picture frame, well, I guess what would be a good example of that? When the walls fell. Uh, Buster, Buster uh, Keaton, when the walls yeah. fell. <laughs> And Buster Keaton emerging through the window, which fell right over his head. So we're obviously taking this conversation in a lot of different places uh, beyond Star Trek. But before we get too far away from the episode itself, can we just like stop for a moment to give it like massive, massive amounts of credit for working Making this ridiculous premise work. We're still I mean, talking Pete, about it 27 years and one month yes, later. Yes, 27 <laughs> years, one month later. Pete, you know, your explanation about how we talk, we use this way more than well, we might consciously think about it is is a very good observation. But before we even get there, right, you know, just like the fact that, like, they show up on the screen and they're freaking speaking English, but these nonsense <laughs> phrases, and we don't, well, I mean, we do pause and question it, but then we just pick up and move on because, I mean, that's leveraging a whole legacy of Star Trek and aliens speaking English um, and, you know, not really referencing the whole universal translator thing. But beyond that, right, then, like, the painstaking problem solving that the crew goes through, in particular, like, uh, with uh, Data and Troy painstakingly searching the database, computer's database, like it's 1990s Alta Vista level <laughs> sophistication. And, like, they can't, like they have all this phrase phraseology, right, that – you know, you would think that a sophisticated artificial intelligence like, oh, I don't know, the one inside of Data's brain could uh, correlate and find the common thread going through. But no, they don't do that. They just have to, like, step it through step by step. And they do that, uh, you know, it, it, it's it's more understandable that Picard has to do it. Just Jurassic Park him, in the but... Unix system is what you're saying, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, there you go. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's, it's like it's more understandable that Picard has to do it painstakingly less so. That they have to do it on the ship. I mean, there's a whole bunch of other stuff in, in this episode that really ought not work, but um, those are just a couple of them right there, right? Nobody has a cell phone in the middle of the woods with Jason approaching, right? Is like the idea that, like, even with modern levels of technology, 27 years later, the plot of this episode would not be possible to be carried out. And and yet, I think I think there is a kind of a metaphor here for all artistic creation, uh, mm-hmm. a little bit, right? Which is that. You know, when when spoiler alert, when the uh, Tamarian captain dies at the end, it like it's genuinely moving. And so to to a certain extent, all language is nonsense sounds right. Like absent absent the cultural context of language, they're just sounds. They weren't like handed down by God. And unless that's your bag, in which case, you know, I, you know, I, I don't know. But bless you right but like uh the 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 languages are are just um they're contingent right they're arbitrary uh and they're just these kind of noises that we make they're just these marks uh they're just these marks on on the paper and yet they can sort of move us to laughter or tears um or whatever. And this is like, this actually is a, a sort of reductio ad almost absurdum of this, this situation. Uh, the, you know, short glossary of nonsense phrases that the Tamarians speak. And yet, even with that limited vocabulary, even with that box of eight Crayola crayons, metaphor, right? They can create, uh, they, they can, transport you emotionally and that's like that's not nothing that's that's pretty cool um it's a you know storytelling skill but i think it's also something inherent in uh inherent in human life and kind of an amazing thing that we can do with and for uh and to one another Uh, some other stray observations about this episode um is that there is no b plot I think it's something that um, we're accustomed to uh, in modern television, that there's like a lot of different threads that we have to uh, keep keep track of. Um, it is uh, O'Brien glacially. and his racquetball game. Right? <laughs> right, yeah, it is glacially slow. Right. The first third of it, like there's this long stretch where the two captains are just like hanging out on the planet of the surface 
the their uh, rival campfires are glowing, or Picard is trying and failing to to get his going, and they're just exchanging glances with each other, and everything is very dark, and that that just holds like beat after beat after beat, um, and uh, it it. it it's it's a good reminder that that the television changed in a lot of ways, not necessarily for the better, either. Um, it's it's just like a really again, it's like endlessly fascinating how this particular episode ha- has stuck with us so long for all these different reasons. Wait, am I supposed to be coming up with a metaphor for all that? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> um, friends, they're in the same apartment 10 years later. I don't know. The, uh, how does it hang on to everything for all these years? Um, you know, I, I, I'm just trying to troll you guys with as many of these metaphors as I can come up with, uh, which is perhaps not the right way to approach talking about this. But, uh, but I, I like the, the ro- idea. The, the rock leaping onto the skyscraper. Well, here's the thing, though. Yes, exactly. Right. The Rock. Consider The Rock leaping under. I think this outlines some of what you've been talking about, Matt, because I say it flippantly, but it integrates meaningfully into the conversation, which is like when we say something like The Rock, you know, grabbing the skyscraper. What does that mean? Okay, on one hand, it means that we're talking about an endeavor that we're going upon that has a certain inevitability to it and is a certain sort of like stand patness to it and, and kind of grinds it out. And maybe we don't really approve of it the way that it happens, but it carries with it a feeling and a sense in the way that you were describing the Juliet and the balcony situation as being a little bit more difficult to parse where like when, and also because we have a shared experience of it. When I say to you, the rock climbing the skyscraper, you know that I'm saying it with a sense of fun and adventure and excitement and also a sense of sort of, you can't shame me for, for liking this Uh, is kind of this sort of subtext of a lot of these references. And it says like, we're all mutually enjoying what we're doing and that this gets carried into the meaning by the metaphor. It isn't necessarily carried, carried by the tenor of the metaphor, but by the vehicle of the metaphor brings in that, that sense, that pejorative or ameliorative sense of whether what you're talking about is, is better or worse or good or bad independently of the kind of strict contextual meaning of it. Uh, you know, and, and, um, what is it, you know, uh, Tokyo, you know, the like what uh, Sean, the Drift King, the Mustang with the Nissan engine. Right. It's like it's not just about the car. It's about the, the family. It's about the migration. It's about the cultural clash. It's about the respect. Uh, and the, but putting the metaphor in there, you can carry so much with you through it. I guess part of what's fun about it is that, like, it's fun to say Shaka when the walls fell. And it's fun to say it to somebody else who knows it. And I guess that's largely because of this extra content, this sort of extra extra lexical syntax, right? This this extra lexical meaning that isn't in the words, but is is in the phrase uh, and and the mutual understanding of the phrase that you're passing to the other person on a high order. I mean, how often would you say you guys reference this episode of Star Trek with other people? Uh, I mean, even even discounting present company. More than once every six months, I would say so. Yeah, yeah, probably. I, yeah. probably. They're they're generally. I mean, in you know, in the overthinking it chat rooms, right? Like there there is a sense of punctuated equilibrium in that, like it'll not come up for a long time, and then will come up because it's what you know. It's one of these things that, like, uh, as Robert Frost said, way leads on to way. Right? The the me- metaphor builds upon metaphor, and so once once you bring it in, it it all kind of has to be cashed out. Um, it it creates this particular one creates when you reference it, it creates a certain amount of energy, and I think a lot of references work like this. It creates energy, or another way of putting it actually might be that it incurs a debt. Might be another language, and the debt has to be all uh, all paid out, which is. An interesting, that would be a kind of heuristically an interesting kind of theory of poetry. I guess that's the anxiety of influence a little Wait, bit. Can, can you keep unpacking that? And it incurs a debt? Like who, yeah. who owes what to who? Sure. If, if I go in to our Slack together, right? And, uh, you know, I don't know. And, and say, um, you know, say, Richard Rosenbaum, overthinker Richard Rosenbaum came down from Canada, right? And uh, we got a we got a rare IRL hang with our buddy Richard, right? I could say, you know, and and Richard came to Boston and uh, went went for a workout in the, in the Squaraj and uh, a barbecue at Pete's house. Yeah, you'd have Richard over, wouldn't you, Pete? Put on the Ritz, yeah, and of I, course. And I said. 
Richard. Simba, his arms open. No, well, yeah, exactly. And I said, you know, oh, well, that sounds like fun, guys. Uh, Richard and Pete at Tanagra. Yeah, to give a sense of the thing. Now, I, I've constructed an elaborate hypothetical to give, a, to give an instance of why I would say that. Now, just throw the hypothetical away because it doesn't matter. Now, once I had said X and Y at Tanagra, right, it opens up a whole kind of discursive realm. And you know that everyone would be jumping in with Darmok jokes, right? Until we felt like we had exhausted the energy uh, that I had, that I had put into the conversation by referencing Darmok. Does that make sense? And so like, right, like, and the slack would be intolerable for like three days, you know, because it would just be Darmok jokes after Darmok jokes. And then there would be second order jokes about the, and then there would be jiffies and it would be a whole, uh, it would be uh, a whole thing, right? And um, and that's that's what I mean. Like you can think of the first one as like putting energy into a conversation, and the energy has to all be dissipated. Or you can think of it kind of negatively as like it incurs a it incurs a debt. It sort of signals a lack, or it like signals a, a hole that ne- that needs to be filled, or a need that needs to be supplied. And uh, all the the subsequent discourse drink is there to to fill the hole to to supply the conversation with the thing that it was uh w- with the thing that it was revealed to have been missing um without necessarily knowing that it was missing that thing uh until the first person you know um until until the first person made the reference initially yeah so this might be related but uh, I, I i believe it is but so tell me how close it is or is not related to what we're talking about um in the movie knocked up i don't know if you remember this but there's a scene where two male characters are have basically their conversation has descended solely into back to the future references like the delorean and you know where we're going we're gonna roads this that and the other and the either one or more female characters um gives them crap for this. And in some way, like they're not able to actually communicate with each other as human beings about real stuff, or I think particularly for the movie knocked up, like their feelings and their insecurities and they fall back on, um, on reference on metaphor, if you will. Uh, is, is that sort of like a, a way in which like metaphor fills, uh, fills these voids like you're talking about, Matt? Sure. I mean, that's a, that's a slightly, that's a slightly different one. I mean, that one is about displacement or sublimation, right? Like the idea that, that a feeling sort of moves, uh, that, that a feeling kind of moves into a different domain. It gets translated into a different domain and finds, finds expression through indirect means when it can't find expression through, uh, through direct means there are definitely in Darmok, there are definitely a couple of the stock phrases that have that right like that have that thing of like too much uh too much emotion you know zinda his face black his eyes red or uh uh kiazi's children their faces wet um that that's that's hard to you know that it would be sort of hard to express otherwise in straightforward language and like you know i am feeling enraged with you right now right like one of the characteristics of that feeling is a difficulty expressing um thoughts and uh, thoughts and emotions in in a straightforward way i don't know i sort of uh i mean i i i I, I would struggle to condemn the the bros in, in Knocked Up for talking in, in DeLorean references because, like, we hear, you know, I don't know, talking about feelings, talking about things that are very important or that are very charged, like, that, like this is difficult and it, it takes training. And, you know, thank goodness that they had, I guess my read as a person, if I encountered people like that in real life was like, thank goodness that they have that language that they can sort of commune, you know, and, uh, and communicate, commune and communicate, um, a little bit, uh, that, that like, uh, it's, it's, it's the role that baseball plays in field of dreams, right? Like, uh, isn't it, you know, Kevin, Kevin Costner remembering his father, uh, the, that even when my dad and I couldn't talk, we could al- we could always talk about baseball. Is that that movie, or am I misremembering? Yeah, it? yeah, yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. And uh, he says um, he says James that James Earl ex- Jones with, yeah, the, with the cabbie hat on. Yeah, yeah. exactly. J- James Earl Jones appearing suddenly in the headlights. <laughs> 
Um, that that like uh, you know, and it's not. I, I suppose it it would be it could be richer uh, and it could be sort of less fraught. I guess if if more people could address these sorts of things more directly, uh, but it. I'm hard pressed to sort of to to condemn the bros for sort of talking in in metaphors, right? Like, you know, I don't know the the yeah. the overthinkers watching The Simpsons, the overthinkers writing the marching band shows. It, it, it's interesting to think about this in the context of the episode, wherein at the beginning of the episode, Picard says that what we have the commute, we have the patience and the imagination. Uh, in order to in order to engage successfully upon communication. Right. I think it's basically like, oh, can we communicate with them? Well, I like to think we're patient and that we are uh, imaginative enough to do so. And there's a hubris in that, because the problem when they arrive isn't that they're not patient enough or that they're not imaginative enough. It's that they don't share the frame of reference. Right. It's uh, you know, it's um, what would I say? Uh, the little, the brave little toaster in the New York apartment, right? It's like the problem isn't that that they, the the uh, appliances aren't communicating with each other because they don't want to. They live very different existences and they have very different perspectives. Um, although there's a sinister implication in that scene as well. Um, and it's interesting that uh, I think people assume in trying to communicate with other people, in particular people with different perspectives than they are, that. Being able to speak a lingua franca that is mutually understood by everybody is a mark of superior character, as opposed to speaking in whatever sort of semiotic framework is kind of local to your group, right? This idea that, uh, well, you guys talk about your feelings in this way, but I talk about my feelings in this way, and the way I talk about my feelings is superior because it is something of a kind of professionalized or, or kind of like mutually codified uh, kind of lexicalist way of thinking about it. I use my words. Well, I guess there is a certain practical benefit. Let's not dismiss entirely the practical benefit of using your words, right? After all, Gandalf at Moria, right? Uh, but uh, but but just that there are other ways that people communicate than and that insisting that using your words makes you a better person. Uh, it might be short-sighted. And also, if your goal is to communicate, then you should not necessarily be focused on whether your way of communicating within your group of people or their way of communicating in their group of people is superior to the other, whether they need to come to yours or whether you need to go to theirs. Uh, establishing the sort of middle ground where you understand what they're saying, not even middle ground, because it's not middle ground. It's it's interchange. You come to understand some of their stories. They come to understand some of your stories. And then you maybe improve your frame of reference for communicating across whatever sort of gulf previously existed, if you believe that this episode is representative of human communication in general, which might be a bit of a stretch, but certainly seems to have some sort of lesson there. Um, right. Yeah. And at, it, the, I mean, at, the, yeah. at the end of the episode, uh, Picard is reading the Homeric hymns, right? Mm -hmm. And he's, uh, you know, Picard being Picard. I mean, Picard got a Picard, right? And he's, he's reading them in ancient Greek, I think. And that, that like, it's difficult and what he says is like, well, maybe there might be some sort of benefit. Maybe we understand our own culture better by uh, by doing, you know, by doing this, by kind of returning to the returning to the the stories of our culture, which which strikes me as as a little bit akin to the sort of what what was the term you used, lexicalist uh, view that like whether or not you know it, these stories have a for these stories are operating within you, like you know, like your mitochondria or something yeah. like that. Like they're they're little engines, they're little. Um, you know, not genetic or cellular engines. They're they're little like mimetic engines, I suppose, right? Like operating operating within you culturally, which I think is false, right? Like if you don't know the stories, they're not operating within you culturally. They might be operating around you uh, culturally, but like to, to a certain extent, it's it's not like you can go read like Hesiod's Theogony and you know suddenly understand. Western civilization or something like that. It's not, you know, uh, I think people have contrary experiences to that to a degree when they revisit classical literature, like people read Antigone and they recognize things that seem familiar to them from their experience. Sure. Wouldn't, wouldn't yeah. you say that? I mean, wouldn't you say though, uh, is it not true though? However, <laughs> Peter, 
<laughs> Sorry, I want to want to get Socratic since we're talking yeah. about the ancient Greeks. Is it not true? Uh, that a slave can understand mathematics. No, um, that's the, the Crito, I think. The, no, is it not true that it is not only one's own culture, right? Like you could read uh, something out of East Asian literature or you could read yeah. something out of a, uh, a very different culture's literature, uh, come across it and have the same sort of have the same sort of reaction, right? Because the the. Um, I, I suppose this might be an unpopular opinion because it's essentially a, a conservative one, but that like, you know, the human condition is the, the human condition and that it, 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 the, it has not changed, um, a great, a great deal in, you know, several millennia. And that, that like, that's why we can understand these things. That was, that's why we can sort of understand these things cross-culturally. Right. I, I can see where you're coming from on this, and I, I think and it's good that I'm glad you're acknowledging that it is a, a particular viewpoint because I do think I don't know does is there is there a kind of meaningful difference in the in the uh, kind of um, what would how would I phrase this uh, in terms of uh, the, the sort of high, in, is there a meaningful difference in the schema across subgroups of people over time that is traceable backwards through influence of previous uh cultural and linguistic exchanges uh i i mean and and um and to say no is kind of a big no uh right like to say you know that um i mean i'm trying to come up with something that's like even oh so so here's an example right um uh uh walter white in the mri machine right so if you can think about in breaking bad there's a scene i believe where uh, we see it's a montage where there's a uh, fade back and forth between Brian Cranston's character of Walter White when he has hair and Brian Cranston's character of Walter White when he doesn't have hair. And I guess maybe this is leading to a different sort of conclusion, a different sort of interaction, but I want to follow it nonetheless. And um, it has to do with him having cancer and it has to do with him going through scanning machines, right, to get his cancer checked. And uh, but there's an inter- there's a weird sort of convenient intersection that happens in the form because Walter White goes bald predominantly, presumably because of his cancer. But after his cancer goes into remission, he remains with his head shaved. And most and many of if not most of but many of the people he encounters in the criminal world um, have their heads entirely shaved. Right. Whereas most of the people who are in the more civilian world don't. And it's similar with facial hair at that period in time that like it isn't really normal for a white professional middle class man in in uh, New Mexico in that time period to have a beard. Right. Um, But almost everybody that he encounters in the criminal world who isn't trying to pass has some sort of facial hair. And there's this kind of um, symbolistic kind of political reading of Breaking Bad that would say that. Uh, making this transition is located. There's a location in this kind of cultural interchange. Of course, we're not talking about real people here, but like he's participating in a history of expression in the semiotics of the bald head. Right. And what it means in this part of the world and the bald head and facial hair has a particular sort of identity associated with it that goes back a certain amount of time. And uh, and, and that is beyond that time is beyond the memory of any one person. And um, and then having it having it the other way. Right. also goes back a certain amount of time beyond the memory of any one person. And while you might shave your head and think like if you think about Michael Chiklis, right, and his head shaved bald in the shield versus like having some around the edges in the commish, there's like a very, very different feel in those two characters. How much of it is attributable to the head? Not all of it, but maybe some of it. Right. Um, And then the question is then, all right, well, what are you copying? Like when you when you copy it, what are you copying? And then in the eventual meaning of it, and I guess maybe this is the important part, uh, even more so than the other part, is when you copy an expression that comes from somebody else that comes from somebody else that comes from somebody else. And isn't it kind of strictly lexically symbolic uh, or signifying um, uh, what about the people who see you do it and what they think about you? What if what if you're a dead author of your own fiction and and uh, like um 
like go back to Juliet on the balcony, right? I was thinking about the the uh, hilarious, not hilarious. I won't call it hilarious, but let's call it like an alternative. There's some sort of crazy alternative universe where you have a nuclear power plant that's staffed entirely by uh, literary critical contrarians, right? And so like the plant starts going critical, right? And somebody says Juliet on the balcony, Juliet on the balcony, right? And then somebody, you know, and and uh, because it, because this is going to end in a lot of death. Yeah, because the Romeo and Juliet isn't about love. It's about, like, social failure and about the, like, inability of human beings to, like, adapt to the essential structural problems of their situation, right? It means, like, not, like, Romeo and Juliet is like, is about the essential conflicts between classes of peoples that self-organize, you know, like, and so on and so forth, right? Like, it's about, it's not about loving teenagers. It's about Montagues and Capulets. And as such, like, the sexual feelings that Romeo and Juliet have for each other are not, they're not a feature, they're a bug, right? And particular sort of reading of Romeo and Juliet. Um, And as such, you know, you might consider the fact that Juliet pines for Romeo as being similar uh, metaphorically to the way that, you know, enriched uranium soaks up high energy neutrons that are being bombarded (laughs) towards it by other enriched uranium, right? It's like, this is not a good thing that is happening. Uh, You know, wherefore art thou Romeo? Wherefore art thou Romeo, right? Is like the sign for like, get the the F out of the nuclear power plants. Um, But the thing that makes is funny for me at least is that you have to imagine that when, there's when more you than say one get person. the f you mean get the fuel rods out of the nuclear power plant <laughs> I, what i'm saying is exeunt pursued by bear <laughs> is what i'm saying um but the thing is the thing that makes it funny i think is that you have to imagine that it's not just one person who's a contrarian reader of shakespeare but that there are like multiple people who are contrarian readers of shakespeare who share this particular reading of that passage otherwise there would be no reason to use it in that way uh right but it's like that you have to you have to feel like there are that uh, not just not just that this the metaphor means something to you but it does mean something to other people and i guess i guess that would sort of say you know what you end up you know bringing into being as a as a language act uh is not necessarily fully dictated by your own intention but as part of your participation in the people around you and and from that reading i think maybe it strengthens the case for being aware of influences, because if somebody else, you know, if, if you if you say uh, what would be another example um, like, OK, so say that uh, Mark, let's say Mark um, was uh, confined to his house. Say Mark had a scarlet fever, right? Say you had scarlet fever, Mark, and uh, and you decided to um, occupy yourself in your time when you were in quarantine by like taking cardboard boxes and building an elaborate maze around your apartment. This, right? this, like, sounds, this sounds like something I would do. Yes. Continue. Yes. Yeah, so, so like say you're like, Oh man, I have nothing to do. And all I have is these cardboard boxes. I'm going to make an elaborate maze in my apartment, like with a slide. Right. Uh, and then the question then is like, well, is what you're doing influenced by Ant-Man and the Wasp? <laughs> right. Like which in which Paul, Paul Rudd, right. Ant-Man is confined to his house and has to make a slide and not has to, but chooses to make an elaborate maze and slide out of cardboard boxes in his house in order to entertain his daughter when his daughter comes over to his house, mm-hmm. uh, which he is allowed to do under the terms of visitation that he has uh, with his daughter. And so. You could claim, no, I'm just a crazy person. I had no intention of making a uh, cardboard box maze based on Paul Rudd's cardboard box maze. This is my fortress of Xanadu, and you can only enter with my permission, right? This has nothing to do with Ant-Man and the Wasp. But if you meet like six out of six people who all think that it has to do with Ant-Man and the Wasp, how is this communication really functioning with regards to the traditions and the kind of past readings associated with this, this, this symbol? Um, I mean, do you see what I'm talking about with that, Matt? I don't know. I mean, it's a little bit of a trivial example in terms of the broader scope of communication, but I guess that's, that's one thing is like, uh, uh, I guess the death of the author is another problem for these people, because if they were to get lost in, uh, in like, uh, you know, new historicist space, they would be unable to, to communicate using any of their classic literature because it's all been stricken from the curriculum in favor of a more novel uh, interpretation of history. Yeah. You'd be like, Shaka, when the walls fell, it would, you know, it would be like, oh, I'm so sorry that you suffered a terrible injustice at the hands of the oppressor. Yeah. Right. Like, that's not what I meant at all. Right. Like that. That's kind of that's that's Shaka Zulu when the walls fell. 
Well, that, see, that's that's the other thing. I think <laughs> I think everybody's got to think about that, right? Right. Like when you hear this, like specifically with regards to Shaka when the walls fell, the aliens haven't don't any know anything about the Zulus as far as we know. But as humans, we hear that, and I think we have to think about the Zulus yeah. pretty much. It's right? also, like, I mean, like the the it's also just a very satisfying combination of sounds. So is Darmok yeah. for what for yeah, what it's true. worth, right? <laughs> You know, um, yeah, euphonia, the USS euphonia. As it were. It's got, it's well, got a, tr- it's got an electronic cellar door that instead of a cargo bay. See, like, so. I, I, geez. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, I thought that you, uh, 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 USS euphonia. This is a uh, USS onomatopoeia. <laughs> pew, pew, pew. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I thought you were going to to go a slightly different direction with, with that arc that you sort of went on, where I thought you were you you started at the beginning talking about cultural difference. I think, yeah, and like yeah. how to uh, how to manage the our ideas about celebrating and, and valuing cultural difference with a sort of more more conservative and and sort of you know less woke idea that um there is a sort of human community right uh, that yeah. that and that we are mutually recognizable uh, to one another and and should be mutually recognizable to one another in our our works of art i mean uh, actually breaking bad like well walter white sliding into the mri machine right like this is not yeah. a bad example right because i think th- this is a trope that that shows up in a lot of stories the the idea of like having a only so long to live, right? Knowing the time of your death, your days are numbered, like, and sort of confronting mortality and like confronting, there, there are all kinds of, of, uh, specifics to it, but the idea of like accelerating your knowledge of death in order to crystallize what the good life is. Right. And in, in the case of breaking bad, which has bad in the title, like to sort of crystallize it through its absence, you know, um, or to kind of interrogate a cultural idea uh, of what the good life is, what people are like, what human passions and drives are, and how that um, how that compares to you know a consideration of ultimate things when you are uh, when you're facing mortality, right? Like to to a certain. Like, yeah, you have to squint a little bit, but that story has been told over and over and over again. And so it's not, I, I mean, I would dispute the, the, and maybe this is a, a straw woke orthodoxy, but I, w- I would dispute the, the uh, at the risk of making a straw man argument, I, w- I would dispute the woke orthodoxy that there's a kind of irreducible, unbridgeable difference or gap, uh, you know, between people in different situations. And that, like, though there may be differences in emphasis and differences in the specifics of expression um that there are some some currents uh there are some sort of underlying currents that you know are are recognizable among among cultures and and things like this you know breaking breaking bad uh, you could write breaking bad with i don't know with with Greek gods, right? Or you could write Breaking Bad with samurai, you know, or you could write Breaking Bad with, I, I don't know, just, just pick a, you know, world mytho-historical tradition and, like, there probably is a version of Breaking Bad, uh, Breaking Bad in it. I mean, to a certain extent, um, the story of, of the rich man and Lazarus, not Lazarus that comes back from the dead, but, but, uh, Lazarus, the beggar at the, who, um, longed for, crumbs from the rich man's table and even the dogs would would lick his sores right like is a little bit uh is a little bit break you know the rich man breaks bad you know <laughs> and that uh like um all of actually a lot of the a lot of the biblical parables that involve a judgment at the end when where everyone goes to their final judgment and you uh you sort of learn what was and wasn't important are are kind of versions of 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 that and i know i know i know i'm not I'm being super reductive and not doing justice to the um you know to the many many great things about breaking bad but but you know i think my my higher order point holds though it's interesting one another um Another example of a kind of uh, creation of an idea. So, so I guess I'll broaden this to the idea of 
can you, through an act of language, create a an idea of the in, interaction and engagement of people that heretofore has, for all intents and purposes, not existed? It is an interesting question to pose. Uh, and and uh, if maybe not, if never, because I think just in terms of monkeys and, you know, the monkey and the typewriter, you know, writing Hamlet, you know, you could say, well, somebody did at some point. But one example that sticks out to me that I guess I, I want to float to you guys. And again, I'm not a master historian or anything like that. Um, but one change that has really interested me in thinking about this as I listen to history podcasts and stuff is the shift in the meaning of what a monarchy is that happens through the like 16th, 17, 18, 1900s in Europe specifically, where you start out with this idea that, you know, a monarchy has a sort of dominion, right? Well, you start with the idea that the monarchy has the monarchy has a relationship with other people, right? And that those, rela- those mutual relationships kind of establish a way of managing a given territory and the rights that are associated with that given territory, right? And then that sort of evolves over time into this sense that the territory itself has a contiguous sort of self-association, and the monarchy has that association as a dominion, right? And it rules that land, and that other people in that land are subject to the monarchy. Then over time, that also changes then to the idea that in that land are people, right? And then instead of the the, the land, then the monarchy comes to to, to represent the rulership of the people in the land. Like um, so, and these all and these all have sort of practical differences from each other. In, you know, when they're actually put to the test, uh, somebody is particularly with regards to like migration or how you treat minorities or um, a lot of stuff along these lines. You know, if you're if you're the king of France and you have a bunch of people living in France who are Jewish, that is different than if you are the king of the French and you have a bunch of people in France who are Jewish, because you might not necessarily think of yourself as their king and representative of their, you know, their particular needs if you rule the, the other people. Whereas if you rule the land and they happen to live there, that doesn't really make them any different, or does it, right? Because you might have other relationships, certainly capable of various sorts of prejudice. And then it makes me think in particular also of like the ascent of Leopold of Belgium, where like they made a new country because it was politically expedient and useful for them to make up this new country uh, out of a place that had been through a lot of different sorts of conflict over time. This is something people do a lot. Uh, and then they're like, well, we have to have a king for the country. And they went about finding somebody who had the right family connections who could, like, plausibly act as a king for this country uh, based on the norms that had been established by other people, uh, by sort of what sort of families constituted an appropriate sort of regal family and putting Le- put Leopold, like, in charge of Belgium. And he was friendly with the British. He was cousins with this person. He was cousins with that person. Right. So he had all the right friends and he had all the right family. And, and there was some sort of need to put him as the monarch of Belgium. And I kind of feel like between that way of thinking about countries and and now, and, and at least not now, but like my own way of thinking about countries in the modern day, I find this frame of reference to be difficult to comprehend. The idea that like, well, you can't have a country without a king, right? Um, and, and just in the same way as it's like, what do you mean you're the king of the people in the country as opposed to the land in the country, right? Uh, and these are all metaphors. Uh, the, I mean, obviously, because in practice— these, if not metaphors, they're higher order order semantic schema that reflect like a sort of imagination that creates an idea that is then kind of practically applied in a whole bunch of different sorts of, of acts along with other people. And, and I guess the idea then is like people walk into these different relationships with assumptions about other people's intentions or other people's uh, kind of um, expectations, right, uh, you know, sort of meta expectations and so on and so forth. And it's sort of like, do you really do you really believe that somebody's frame of mind with regards to something can change so greatly? And, and I kind of feel like it can, I, I, especially if you look at, I mean, even if you wanted to transport it to a less touchy subject today, like you can think about things that you think about now fundamentally differently than you did like 20 years ago, I think. Um, just as individuals, because of things that have happened between then and now, and because of the kind of micro history of language acts that have taken place that have kind of influenced the way that we think about things and talk about things. And these kind of transfer somewhat through story. Um, I mean, I'll just float that out there as a suggestion for like, uh, curious to what you think about it, whether it role plays any role at all, or whether it's sort of such a small role relative to other sorts of effects, that it's not something that should be majorly considered. Um, I guess I will say what, like, 
um, Captain Planet at the end of the Planeteers episode. <laughs> the power is yours. Uh, to, to close that with a metaphor. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's um, it's more like uh, Gretchen trying to make fetch happen. <laughs> oh, so you show. Oh, fair enough. Fair. So Paul Walker before the drag race. And I'm saying Paul Walker after the track. Race. I get the car and I get the respect. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, yeah. Speaking of which, uh, Dominic Toretto uh, <laughs> at the barbecue saying the grace. Yes. We have a couple of comments from our our uh, last episode. Let's uh let's highlight those from uh episode 537. Everything was better when I was a baby. And thanks very much Mark for hosting. Uh you were you were an admirable host and uh to Rachel D and to Ryan for for uh participating in that about uh pop punk emo punk and and uh nostalgia focalized through a couple of of musicals uh yellow jacket listener yellow jacket uh writes in uh about seeing jagged little pill and points out a, a really interesting um a really interesting uh thing that people walk walked out uh yellow jacket writes we did see about six couples walk out before intermission so i'm not sure what show they thought they were going to see uh, the other time i've seen that was during a tour of big river that was just so bad that half the audience just went home at intermission but that was a quality not content statement i mean my other notable anecdote was at spring awakening where a mom with a 10 year old son was warned about the content of the show but she said he was very mature the 10 year old was very <laughs> mature they left after intermission but that was after spoiler alert the rape scene between Melchior and Vendla, uh, which was staged semi-nude in the Broadway production of, of Spring Awakening. Um, so, too late to lock that barn door with your, <laughs> with your 10-year-old. Do you guys have experience of people walking, walking out of things? Uh, speaking of Broadway, yeah. I mean, uh, Avenue Q. Um, I, I, I will remember, I remember that, uh, uh, <laughs> at intermission, uh, this, uh, this, this uh, group of people who were, or they were from out of town, let's put it this way, um, just muttered under their breath. That is not what I was expecting. And they did not come back for act two. Were you doing a, su- um, were you doing a Southern accent there? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. I was. I was. <laughs> Got <Yeah>. it. <laughs> Understood. <laughs> message, message um, deciphered. Sir. I, I really feel like, okay, maybe in like 2006 when that anecdote happened, I might be able to excuse that in terms of lack of research and things like that. But come on in 2017 and when the show is freaking called jagged little pill, right? There is nothing that is left to ambiguity about uh, what, what you're getting into, I feel like. So I, I don't have much sympathy for people who walk out. I don't know. Uh, Pete, have you ever walked out of anything? Yeah. Um, I walked out of a lecture once in school. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it was an English lecture. And because the professor was talking about, um, I believe it was ironically, uh, the professor's house, uh, the novel, uh, which is by um, uh, Willa Cather. And I think that I think it was the professor's house, the novel. And I think that somebody in the novel was talking about the Aeneid. And the professor said, you know, just to explain to all of you, and I'm not going to name names. I don't even really remember the name of the professor who is saying this. Just to explain to all of you, the Aeneid is this classical Roman poem. Uh, and it's about it's from this. It's written in this time in Roman history where there was constant civil war. And it's about the guy who put an end to the civil war. whose name was Julius Caesar. <laughs> and I got up and I walked out of the lecture. Oh, gosh. <laughs> uh, and you know why, Matt, right? Right. You know why? <laughs> <laughs> because, out, because if somebody asks you, Ray, who the Aeneid is about, you say it's about Augustus. It's not about Julius Caesar. Yeah. <laughs> it was written well after the Roman Civil War. Um, and so that that was like like a generation after Julius Caesar. So I was so offended by this that I got up and walked out of the lecture. Uh, thankfully, I had lost so much confidence in this course that by this point I was sitting in the second to last row of the balcony. So it was a long time coming. Uh, I've never walked out of a movie, though. Uh, I don't think. I think. I think only that lecture uh, is something that I walked out of. I actually uh, wish. I wish I were more. I, I wish I had more uh, 
you know, gumption with, with walking out of things, but I get kind of invested in like seeing, seeing it through, even when it's very bad, which is really not, uh, not all that great for me or anyone. Um, are you sure that these people weren't thinking they were attending a pharmaceuticals conference? Yeah, that's, I mean, it is, it was in, it was in Boston. It was in, in Cambridge, I guess, which is notable for its biotech industry. So there could have been uh, a conference about pill shapes and these were, you know, um, these were pharmacists or something like that. They were, uh, they, they thought it was just a metaphor. Uh, uh, Crystal writes in to give a great little typology of actually I shouldn't say little it is uh, it is detailed and voluminous um, so a uh, Crystal a well actually member of Overthinking It thank you Crystal and by the way Yellow Jacket in, in a way member of Overthinking It thank you so much uh, right uh, uh, writes in to give a little typology of pop, pop <laughs> did it again uh, um, there's jock skater vansified pop punk a la Blink 182 Crystal writes, which is very broish in a ah, that's what it feels like to be seventeen kind of way. Guys seem to be having a good time. They may think they're awesome and punk and edgy, but they don't think to see thing. They don't seem to think they're so deep and wise and different from all those other guys. Ryan Key, the lead singer of Yellow Card, is painfully earnest, but he never positions himself as the worthy guy on the end of a love triangle. Then there's the sensitive guy, pop punk, with lyrics that are very much aware of their cleverness and deepness. So this guy is into how wounded he is and probably wants his ex girlfriend to die in a car crash uh, I, I think every single emo band has a song about a woman dying in a car crash <laughs> crystal writes i mostly listen to this variety of pop punk i think there is a timing element to it this style was more popular in the latter half of the 2000s but a lot of that i listened to all the fueled by ramen bands plus a lot of uh taking back sunday and brand new uh and fallout boy uh i still do listen to those when i was a teenager i was very into the other people don't understand me and the people who hurt me are the worst vibes as an adult i shoot a lot more lyrics the side eye like dude are you really so unable to deal with rejection that you want your ex to literally die and crystal means literally literally there <laughs> and and she crystal goes on to say literally that's kind of pathetic Anyway. Yeah, uh, j- just in brief, uh, we talk a lot about the toxic, that sort of toxic, toxic masculinity and how the musical skewers it. Um, I don't think uh, the, the none of the characters in the show, I think, want uh, sort of a, an unrequited love to literally die. But there is that just sort of uh, you know, lack of maturity when it comes to romantic relationships and human relationships uh, that's on display uh, and is made fun of to great effect. In pop punk high. Well, thank you very much, Yellow Jack and Crystal. If you uh, want to leave a comment on this episode, uh, go to the website, uh, click on show notes underneath the little entry for this episode, and you will be directed to a page where you can leave a comment. We are happy to uh, read them on the podcast and talk about them on the show. It's so nice that we uh, occasion some thoughts in you and that you take the time to write them down and send them into us. We appreciate it. All right. Uh, 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 Oh, I had it. I had it going. His sales, his sales and for Mirab with sales unfurled. Uh, <laughs> we go. Oh, Pete, the river Tamak in winter. <laughs> Blue the bear on the sea on the uh, sea duck. Right. Is that what that's called? <laughs> um, yeah, let's uh, let's leave it there until next week. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you too for podcasting. And uh, we will be back next week. Until then, visit us on the web at overthinking where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it, probably, it probably doesn't, doesn't deserve it. Hey, hey, Matt. Hey, Matt. Yep. Uh, Iceman and Maverick on the tarmac. Charlie and Maverick in the bed. That took a turn.